Hey there, welcome to Broadcast to Post. I'm Jeff Sengpil, CTO at Keycode Media. This is the show where we interview leaders and experts in the AV, broadcast, and post-production spaces. We're giving you the inside tips to grow your media workflows and business today. Hey everybody, I'm Jeff Sykepiller. We're looking into media, teams, cloud, and hybrid strategy. There's a lot of folks that went all in on cloud with their team as they rushed to get folks working during the pandemic. So they were capturing, they were editing, they're delivering all in collaboration from home on the cloud. So a lot of people who had titles like director or, or VP of post-production thought it was just going to be easy. You put your credit card into AWS, into Azure, or Google accounts, and you send terabytes of stuff everywhere for the project and you invite all your collaborators. And then someone invited the bill. Um, someone now has to justify to their CFO why the cost of things like egress and additional licenses exploded well beyond what was originally budgeted. So you don't want to be that hurting unit with a declined credit card. Trust me. This is something our engineering team has been helping customers with over the last couple of years, designing a balanced cloud, multi-cloud, or a cloud on-prem hybrid workflow for post-production that's just going to work for you. I'm really excited about this podcast episode. We've got our friend Mark Anderson from Seagate on with us. At Seagate, Mark has been working alongside our team for years, figuring out the most complex cloud storage challenges for some of the largest studios you can find out there. Um, streaming services, post-production companies, media companies, you name it, he's helped us solve something. Mark, really glad to see you here today. Let's get started. Mark, let's get started with the basics. Define the term cloud and hybrid storage for media and entertainment solutions. What are these things? Sure. So let's see. Cloud, first of all, besides the things that hold water that, that float over our heads. Mm -hmm. um, in our context, the cloud is uh, basically the network that exists all around us of storage and compute uh, that lives through the, tu the inner tubes uh, in data centers that we all connect to, right? Um, whether it's through our cell phones or through computers and the internet, et cetera, um, where essentially you can store things, store data, and, and do work on that data via compute that's located in the cloud as well. The way, the way I've always seen it there is it's other people's mm -hmm. storage, other it people's is. computers. Yep. However, I don't own them. Correct, you're, you're basically renting space there, right? Yes. Um, in some cases, you're <laughs> uh, more than renting it, you're kind of giving people your data to hold hostage, depending on how you want to look at the bills. Uh, but the that's a whole other thing. is definitely a, 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 we'll get into that a little later. Exactly. That's a, yeah, a little foreshadowing. So why would you say we need to put media in the cloud? I mean, I think increasingly as we're working in a I want to say more geographically dispersed way, especially. Uh, well, there are two things. One is is obviously COVID really showed us the possibilities of work from home, work from anywhere. And the cloud is a great enabler of that because it doesn't require you to move the connectivity wherever you go and move hardware wherever you go, right? It's if you're relying on the cloud on, on a data center you know, somewhere else to be doing the actual work on your data and even to house your data and maybe having just proxies or some, you know, version that you can even work from directly on your computer wherever you are. But that opens up the possibilities of people being able to uh, 
hire the best talent possible wherever they're located uh, to allow their employees to live wherever they want to um, and 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 you know work-life balance comes into play and, and becomes a question and, and you know we saw migration away from large urban areas that have gotten very expensive um, and I'm kind of rambling here but but the other thing it does so that's that's the one side is it essentially enables people or can enable people to work anywhere on what they need to work on. The other side of it is it also can enable a lot of elasticity because you're not really limited by, I need to you know, expand my data center to hold more data that I'm storing. But on top of that, if I need to do a huge render job, I can spin up a whole ton of CPUs just to do that render job, get it done real fast, and then stop paying for them, turn them off. Um, so I think that's the, that's the big advantage in the why of the cloud. Um, the, I'll say the, the downside though is, well, there, there are multiple downsides. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a specialized workflow thing. You have to get the data there in the first place, um, which involves other challenges like how do I get it there? How, you know, how fat is my pipe? Because that data... As a, you know, has to flow up there, and if you think about you know our home internet speeds, if you're dealing with anything like that, um, it's going to take a while to get a, a you know the data from a shoot up more, to the cloud. More than a while, I think. Yes. I mean, and one of the things I've always seen there is um, we've got certain clients that we're talking to where they've said we're going to have to replace the air conditioning in our building. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. Um, you know, power and cooling and all those other things, mm -hmm. real estate costs to facilitate keeping your data and keeping your machines in one area when your people aren't necessarily there. I think COVID showed that we could do it. Now the question people are asking is, should we just do this as a regular thing going on? Because I can buy a whole bunch of core vaults and put them into a data center down on Wilshire Boulevard mm -hmm. with a whole bunch of other computers next to it, and I've made you know, the, the space for this to happen. Yep. You could call it your private cloud or your data yep. lake as a lot of people like to call it. But I've moved it out of the area where we used to do all the work, mm -hmm. where everybody used to come and, you know, fight the fight the traffic here in LA. Certainly, certainly. And that one, well, and coming back to your earlier question about hybrid cloud, I mean, you're, you're highlighting it right there, right? It's, well, taking a step back, I think the first issue that we have to think about is, you know, there was a mad rush when COVID hit, to get people working remotely, right? It, by necessity, you know, we couldn't have buildings full of people all next to each other editing content because of social distancing and you know many things. Um, so initially, they saw that was solved by sending people home with hard drives, but realizing that that was you know not optimal, um, so. Hence, the drive to cloud enabled workflows, and 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 outside. I mean, and not just in this industry, right? It's it. Everybody was in a mad rush to get everything on the cloud as quickly as possible, but then the bills started coming, and there was some buyer's remorse, right? Is because you don't. In most cloud models, the challenge is your bills are not really predictable, you know, especially when you add in the things that a number of cloud companies charge you for, like ingress and egress, API call charges, uh, you can, I mean, you can fill in the blank on top of all the compute cycles and other things as well that you potentially get charged for as well. Um, so 
I mean, that's why it happened to Seagate, frankly. We had all our stuff in, you know, we're using one of the major cloud providers, and then we got the bill. And our CIO went to the CEO and said, hey, you know, we make all these hard drives. How about I take them and put them in a data center that we, you know, have space at and build our own cloud? So that's a great example of a, of a basic cloud setup. Yep. You guys were your own client, basically. We were. We were customer zero for live cloud, which is the, the cloud storage service that Seagate came up with. And, and so we, in essence, started our own you know, private cloud. Or, or, and a hybrid cloud is then the mixture of private with public cloud. And I'm, I am not part of that department, but I'm sure that we, I know that we do use some public cloud services, right? So Seabird is, sorry, Seagate is a hybrid cloud customer. We have our own large private cloud that you know, goes and interacts with the public cloud, whether it's just to do some compute on the data that we have in our private cloud, um, or even to potentially store certain things in certain places where it makes sense in, in other public cloud services. And, and be able to use some of those services. There's, there's a lot of cool right. stuff that uh, the hyperscalers, that's what, that's what yes. we call them, are, are doing out there. Hey, I can do this for your media. I can do that for your media, which I don't necessarily need to build all on my own. I just need to have access to it. So, and that, that's a great thing for a hybrid private and public cloud sort of setup. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it really comes down to in terms of, well, getting back to Seagate, so we, we did that, we built our own private cloud because of that buyer's remorse. And then, and then our CEO went to the CEO and said, well, you know, I built this out, how about can I go sell it now? And so that's how it started. And it became, and the whole idea behind it is creating a simple predictable model for being able to sell cloud, right? And with Seagate, you're only paying for the amount of data you use. Mm -hmm. There's no other charges, no fine print. I mean, because that's the challenge with a lot of the guys, even the smaller guys, that even though they say that you don't pay for ingress or egress or other things, there's some fine print in the contract. Uh, so that, for example, if you end up pulling down more data than you put up at a given period of time, you're stuck paying for that extra stuff that you pulled down for about 90 days. So again, it's still not quite predictable. Yeah. Um, versus in this case, with the live cloud model, it is completely predictable. You, if you know how many terabytes you have up there, you know what your bill's gonna be. Yes, and a lot of people, really, financial people really like that predictability. That way, no one, no one gets yelled at. Exactly. No one wants to be yelled at. No one wants to be yelled at. But that's, and, and that comes back to like a multi-cloud strategy really comes down to, like you mentioned, some of the hyperscalers have some tremendous services that, that they can do, but you know, their cloud storage costs may be much higher, mm -hmm. or they may have those other hidden fees or other things. So when it comes down to a strategy and how to essentially house your data in the most efficient way possible, financially efficient, mm -hmm. and, and uh, which is really what we're talking about in a lot of ways, uh, you want to look at all the different places you're putting it and really come up with a, a true strategy to say, look, if I want an act, if, if all of this stuff is going to be in, let's say, active archive where it's not cold, mm -hmm. I don't want to have to pay to get it back, uh, but I'm not necessarily, it doesn't have to be over here where I'm doing all this compute on it all the time, then, you know, you put it in live cloud. 
and then, but I've got this other stuff over here that I need to render, and I need to, you know, spin up a bunch of uh, uh, compute nodes for whatever process I'm doing. Then maybe you put that data, you know, over there yeah. while you need it. Over there while you need it. And that also allows you to keep your data in the area where your work is going to happen. So that's one of those things where people had data in clouds, and editor comes along and goes. Hey, I just translated all of the dailies into Portuguese. And then people come back and go, uh, you don't speak Portuguese. We don't need them in Portuguese. And how much did this cost? Just because they could do it there didn't mean that they should have done it there. So let's get into something that's been a big buzz of late, what people call the multi-cloud approach. Um, a lot of times today people are using the same storage tier methodology that they're used to on-prem. Uh, there's an active, there's a near line, there's an archive, there's an LTO, but the tiers of the cloud are slow, medium, or fast. Sometimes that's in terms of speed, sometimes it's in terms of price. Um, how do you describe multi-cloud with respect to what Seagate's doing? Well, Seagate specifically, we're really doing largely one tier. Um, and it's, it's a, I guess what would normally be a warm to hot tier, um, equivalent to, to Amazon standard, for example. Um, so it's, but it's really ideally suited for that active archive backup that you want access to, right? Because you don't have to pay to get content back. That's, that's the great part of it. You can put whatever you want there. It can also be very, it's also very flexible because you're only paying for what you're using. So it can also be, I mean, getting back to the hybrid idea, it can also flex your on-prem storage. So the, the other thing we haven't really talked on or, or touched on is, is not in addition to multi-cloud, it's, it's this balance of, of on-prem, whether you're talking private cloud, public cloud, um, or even on-prem generally, with a cloud to back it up because the cloud can do a lot of things, mm -hmm. right? You have, so your, your on-prem working edit storage, for example, when you get really busy, you're gonna fill it up and you, need, you may need to displace some stuff for a time that you'll want access to again, that you'll wanna bring back when those projects get hot again, like during, if you're, during some uh, slower phase of that project. Active Exactly, Active Archive. So that's another area where Live Cloud can make a lot of sense, right? Is it it can give you that ability to just flex your on-prem storage off into a bucket that you don't own, so you don't have to keep paying for or capitalizing the cost for. Uh, but similarly, that whole uh, buyer's remorse on people moving everything to the cloud, there are even if you're talking about doing object storage, um, it can make sense in terms of economies of scale to own some of that hardware yourself. What, like you mentioned, having a bunch of core vaults in a you know colo downtown. As long as if I own them, it's still net net potentially going to cost me less than renting the space in the cloud to work on the data. So for some companies, that's a better strategy, and it, it really comes down to need, need to do an audit with someone who can walk through the workflow with them and, walk the pricing, perhaps. and walk through the pricing and really model out like what really makes sense based on how they're using their data and how they want to use their data, because that's the other thing. 
Uh, Seagate's done, we've sponsored this report called the Data Age Report, where an earlier iteration mentioned that, I think it was, that in total, the data sphere would be 175 zettabytes by 2025. Uh, it's a big number. It's a very, very big number. Um, the bottom line is there's a whole lot of stuff out there, a whole lot of data that's generated, whether you're talking about uh, from people shooting stuff that ends up getting deleted, but of course, editors hate to delete things. Um, but also beyond that, metadata, um, other things from IoT, um, where there's lots of data being generated that ends up getting deleted because people have nowhere to store it, and essentially nowhere to store it economically. So it's looking at what do you want to do with your data and, and what makes the most sense in terms of how to store the data with each thing you want to do with it. Yeah, the, the, the right cost of the data storage for the right type of storage you need it to be. So you, you'd mentioned working on the data and that gets into the discussion about compute. Um, you know, there's all sorts of services out there. You guys work with Zadara, AWS has yep. their own internal stuff. Um, you can even do bare metal, like a lot of the, the data center providers and others will essentially, you know, allow you to rent uh, servers and, and GPUs that are in their facilities. And, and that's how a lot of people work with the Mac OS today. Yep. If you want Mac in, inside of a, a data center, you are basically renting the whole computer just sitting there. Um, so sometimes jumping up and down isn't practical. Sometimes it can be costly, depending on where you get it running. Um, and folks have been talking about a, a stay up strategy in the cloud for those cloud workflows. Um, thoughts on that? I guess it comes to, well, I guess it really comes down to, and you were mentioning the tiers of the cloud, right? There are, I mean, there are archive tiers, but it's also, in, again, understanding the cost model and, and really, are you going to need that data back, right? Um, when, it, when it comes down to archive, it, Seagate, we've even talked about, we have what we have announced what we call Live Archive, which is a similar archive tier that's, that's done a little bit differently. Um, one of the things with it, though, is that everything is on spinning disk. So you're not, because that's one of the things with, with uh, some of the archive tiers out there that you see, or the things that are designed to be archive or infrequent access, is that it's all on tape, which drives how quickly you can get the data back. Now granted, depending on what you're looking to do with the data, that may not matter. If it's a, if it's a true DR, disaster recovery set of data, potentially, hopefully you have insurance as well for data loss, which will help cover all the egress costs if you're in one of those services, because many of them allow the, basically are super cheap upfront because of the egress costs in terms of getting your data back. Which, which also drives a conversation about business continuity. Because disaster recovery and business continuity are not the same thing. If I've got something on, uh, on an LTO that melted in a fire, um, it's gone forever. If I had that backed up in the cloud somewhere, it's still there. But how often am I going to need it? That's a, that's a disaster recovery. Right. Business continuity is I've got data today that we shot last week. If it went away... What's that going to cost me to, to continue? And and that's I think that's one of the, the pieces there that you guys really shine in. It's there's ways to quickly shift and pivot to a cloud centric workflow from an on prem workflow 
should an unfathomable disaster happen. Absolutely. Well, and, and vice versa, right? It's having, so business continuity, as you're referring to, also means essentially, you know, I lost, I lose my data center, I lose my main storage today. I have everything backed up in the cloud. The challenge, you know, the first challenge is how do I get that data in some form or some place where I can work on it. Now, if I can work on it and do what I'm, everything that I would normally do on-prem and do it all in the cloud within 24 hours, then my business is, you know, I have business continuity. In some cases, that's not gonna work. In some cases, you're gonna need, for whatever reason, you're gonna need that data to come back physically. But that's where there are also other solutions to look at, like how, I mean, does the cloud service provider you're working with have a solution for moving data as well. I mean, Seagate does in terms of our live mobile solution. That's a data transport as a service. It's a, a series of encrypted shuttles. So enterprise grade encrypted shuttles that you can use to move data up to the cloud, but potentially you could even in a disaster recovery event or business continuity, I mean, where you need that business continuity and need it fast, could potentially use at least in a matter of, of days to load up your data and bring it back. So that also gets into the discussion about redundancy. How big of a disaster recovery blast radius do you need? So one of the things that's always in the back of everybody's mind here in Southern California is, are we going to fall off into the ocean? And if the data center's here and all the systems are here and all the people are here, how does your business continue working at that point? Um, and you, you guys have multiple data centers, so that expands the amount of last that you got, that the data can survive and people could just begin working from somewhere else in the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, it does. And you need to consider, well, in many cases like, like with Seagate, but among others, you also control what data center your data is in. So you need to make sure and look at that when you're, when you're creating the buckets, when you're housing the data in the cloud. Because mm -hmm. uh, obviously if you're only housing it in one data center, you're limited to any events that might happen. Now, like Seagate's partnered with Equinix, which is a major data center provider with an incredible amount of uptime, you know, there with, with uh, ginormous UPCs and generators and things to keep it running in the event of even all sorts of other calamities happening right around it. Uh, but that being said, like you mentioned, you need to look at where the data is, where the data is physically, and realistically, you still don't want. I mean, it's, it goes the old three, two, one rule. Mm -hmm. You still don't want one copy of your data. That's you're not backed up if you only have one copy of your data, even if it's in the cloud. Quite true. If it's in multiple places in the cloud, and it's seamless, that's a different story. Yep. So talking about that that backup concept, there's cloud, and mm -hmm. we've been working with LTO for a number of years. Uh -huh. um, I mean, LTO for a lot of folks has been a core inexpensive way to deal with data backup, uh -huh. especially when it's imposed upon you, <laughs> where someone says, you need to have a, a tape backup of this material sitting over here somewhere. Yep. Um, what are your thoughts on where cloud backup solutions work as opposed to, uh, you know, an LTO traditional library kind of deal? That's a good question. I would say uh, 
gets back to workflow, right? How how frequently do you need to access the data? I think if you only if you're looking at one copy in the cloud as an active archive, you know, LTO obviously has its limitations in terms of being able to get your data back quickly. Uh, in in terms of well, also now obviously generational issues. Mm -hmm. So, I would say it's still a viable option, but if you want your data to be active, I would say you want to look at a separate solution, whether it's a private cloud or some kind of because uh, uh, because disk based storage is has gotten far cheaper than it used to be. So it's very viable to have an archive, an active spinning archive, whether that's you know on your premises or up in the cloud uh, on a you know again something like a live cloud where you you don't have to pay through the nose to be able to get the data back. So I've I've talked certainly talked to some customers where that makes sense, uh, but the other thing is it comes down to speed of access and and in some cases uh, distance of access geographically right. We're, I'm actually working with one customer now who is uh, a major uh, film <laughs> studio mm -hmm. that is backing up, is now looking to stop doing on-set LTO copies because historically that's what they've done is you know backing up to LTO on-set, that was the old workflow, and then shipping boxes of LTO back to the mothership to then get rehydrated to eventually be worked on again. Um, but they want to cut that. They want to cut that out if they can, and so what they're doing is they're they're taking a NAS device that's being used on set, as has been typically done, or at least recently, mm -hmm. um, and having that directly send data to Live Cloud, so that there's a DR copy in Live Cloud, but likewise they can potentially restore right back to the mothership right from Live Cloud, um, and there's some other benefits with that as well. I mean, besides not having to box up and chip tapes and, and deal with the whole re-ingest process and, and writing process in the first place. Uh, and this, by the way, goes back to cloud choice. If you're dealing with moving data between geographies, between continents, you also have to look at what the charges are around that too. Yes. Because um, like live cloud, one of the great things about us is that we currently don't charge you to move data between Country, between not just countries, but continents. So if you're moving data from the UK to the US, you're not going to get a huge fee to move that data. Again, unlike some providers. So that's that's all these, these are many different things that you need to look at as you're designing your workflow in whatever cloud destination you're going or destinations you're going to work with. Understandable. So that also leads to data orchestration. Yes. Determining, okay. At the end of the day, what's my total cost of ownership going to be? And am I processing things in the right place or doing work in the right place? Um, one of the things I've seen out there is uh, transcoding workflows where <clears throat> it's a news environment. I need this done quickly and it needs to be uh, immediate. So that might end up being on-prem. I'm, I'm, I'm creating, yeah. my, creating my dailies there. Well, especially if it's predictable, right? That's yes. that's where on-prem shines is if you know how much compute you need and you're going to be using it all the time, then realistically you're probably it's probably better to be doing it on-prem. Definitely. And then but the thing also I can do is say, "Hey, if I've exceeded what I can do on-prem, I can now shuttle it out, move yes. that data to the cloud and 
uh, an instance out there in compute picks it up and takes care of the overflow for me. But also I've got other workflows where, hey, it's an old sports event. We need to turn it into files, but we don't need to do it really quickly. So that just simply, it can move out to the cloud. It does it as, a, it, as it's available. So that orchestration layer lives there to determine, okay, what's the best cost for this particular workflow? And based upon the amount of time you need for it too. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, because you can basically look at, well, if I can do it here with, you know, a few GPUs versus over here and, you know, a, a boatload of them, um, it certainly makes sense. And so if having an intelligent tool that can do that is is really critical. I mean, and, and realistically, all of that's what I feel like the cloud has done and especially multi-cloud workflows um, and, and hybrid workflows have really highlighted the importance of, of data orchestration. Um, I would say it's it's almost... It was funny because I was, I was in a talk the other day and it's, I feel like where we're going is file systems themselves are, are becoming less relevant than what's stitching them all together, right? Is that, is that piece that actually, and, and may even, you know, sooner or later kind of fade to the background so that it's, you know, just kind of expected that this is going to, this data is going to be presented in whatever way. But it's this other tool that I'm using that sits above all of these file systems that are strung together that, that really is the most important piece because that's really how you interface your data. Bit glue. Yep. Yep. Um, so let's, let's get out of storage a little bit and talk about media files and workflow. Um, production in the cloud versus things that we do all the time in the cloud that we didn't realize we're doing in the cloud, like yeah. email. Um, what are specific challenges you've seen with cloud in ME workflows, and what are the drivers for going to cloud? So, let's see. Challenges. Well, the first thing is 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 just getting the data there, right? It's it's pipes. We're shooting. It seemed like just as you kind of you know sat through the last decades of ME, where as things have gone digital, every time drives have gotten bigger and storage systems have gotten faster, the cameras have gotten. The resolutions of cameras have gone up, and uh, you know, and, and bit rates have increased, right? So it, it's it's sort of a like <laughs> what's the old adage? It's like you, no matter how big, essentially, the the you always acquire as much stuff as you have available space to to put it, um, and it's kind of that way with cameras and and storage, right? Is it's always kind of been a dance where we've are we've been constantly increasing what we, the data we're creating uh, in ME workflows uh, kind of on, on pace with this, the storage technology that, that's supporting it. Um, so now you've got a ton of data that you're creating and I've got to get it somewhere else through these little pipes. Mm -hmm. that's, so that's the issue is it's, it's how do I get, especially for higher res you know, cinema work, how do I get that effectively to the cloud? Um, on, in broadcast workflows and, and other, it, it's that was much, that's happened kind of much quicker as people have looked at like straight camera cloud, cloud workflows. You know, how do I shoot this and, and have it immediately record right to a cloud destination? Definitely, and I, I think the other piece there is a lot, a lot of content producers are now shooting over the mark. So I deliver maximum 4K, 
maybe maybe HDR, but then you got folks who are recording in you know twelve bit eight K. Why? What what are you doing with that? Because they've got a long term concept with that. I've done the work toward telling everything how this all all these parts will go together, but I only need to deliver it four K for now. But later on, we're going to want to deliver that in eight K. As you know, someone from one of the streamers told me, we intend to have our content until the heat death of the universe. So in that sort of thing is they're going to reformat sooner or later down the line. So one of those those workflows is that long term archive for the gigantic files, even though we're not going to work with those later until much later. Right. Absolutely. Um and I completely forgot where I was going to go with this. That's what happens. But I know, right? I, I, I need to reconnect to the cloud. Um, so a couple things. One, I mean, I know you, you you brought up in terms of this, the issues with moving to the cloud and what's driven it, right? Um, yes, that's one. Again, putting, con putting content somewhere where you're probably not going to touch it again, um, or at least not for a long period of time. That's actually... a. Uh, potentially a good thing to do as long as you're budgeting for it, for the cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some cases, these streamers also have lots of cloud storage that they're using anyway that they own. You know, essentially it's yes. their own private cloud. Uh, so in that case, it's not costing them anything other than the power and cooling and, you know, things that they've baked into their budgets. Uh, but other things driving, what I'd say, one thing that's driven a lot to the cloud is immediacy, right? I mean, talking about those camera to cloud workflows. So it makes sense in it makes much more sense in the M&E context to drive that stuff to the cloud, have editors be able to work on stuff 24-7 around, you know, literally like follow the sun editing teams uh, in, in certain workflows, sports, news, things like that where immediacy is of the essence. Um, now, as, as I want to say, episodic television and broadcast, you know, terminology area, you know, is kind of, I want to say it's sort of sunsetting as we move to streaming and, and other things, I think the immediacy of scripted content is, is decreasing. Well, at one level is decreasing. At another level it isn't because, you know, even major studios are on self-imposed deadlines because they're, you know, saying <laughs> while something is in pre-production or, or hasn't even started official pre-production, they've set a release date, you know, of <laughs> three years yeah. Uh, hence, exactly, May 31st of 2027, we're going to release this movie, even though we don't even have a script yet. So uh, I won't say immediacy isn't an issue in those cases, but you have, uh, with certain things, much more uh, ability to bake in more traditional workflows that may make more sense uh, with moving data physically on you know, drives or in, in other forms of media maybe using the cloud to help move it around or using the internet to help move it. Because uh, I know a number of the major studios have, you know, big fat pipes going from uh, Atlanta to their main location here or from uh, even potentially the UK to here, et cetera. Uh, but there, it, it still doesn't preclude using big drives, especially because they're going out on location and doing things like that. And again, that goes back to... Um, where cloud is and where cloud isn't necessarily right. And, and that's, cloud's great where you have lots of connectivity, even if that's with 5G, you know, wireless, et cetera. But if you're out somewhere with no cell coverage um, and, and, you know, 
two or three hours or two or three days from the nearest data center. You better have a core vault with you. You better have a core vault with you or at least some live mobiles or something that you can dump all the data onto. Um, and then, and then, I mean, now maybe you have sort of a hybrid workflow where you go take that, take all the data you've dumped onto standard drives, take it to a you know your nearest data center after driving for you know however many hours to yeah. days, um, you know if you're in the middle of Africa or whatever it is, and plugging it in in that nearest data center to then upload to the cloud to enable other workflows. That's that's certainly viable too, and that's something that a lot of folks are looking at. And that also gives you that immediate backup as, as soon as possible we can get it you know onto some other method because I, i've also had where hey we captured it on the nas and then the nas arrives at the, the finishing location upside down yeah so that that doesn't work too well in the long term for being able to finish things quickly um so this all leads to the the very tricky part about the cloud uh, we talked a little bit about the beginning show me the money uh, what's what's going to be the cost of the cloud? What are additional charges that people need to look out for before spinning up um, an instance up there? So you know, oh, it's just just S three. <laughs> it's kind of like a gateway drug. It is no, it, it truly is. Well, and that's and that goes back to the data sovereignty that you mentioned earlier. Um, the the real thing is is uh, well, some of the big ones are ingress and egress, but even API call charges and other things. If you're going to do anything with your data. Other than have it sit there by it, you know, just in case, mm -hmm. you may have to pay for it, and that's that really comes down to that that goes down to choice and where you're going to put the data in the first place, um, and what and that you really have to again consider where data orchestration becomes very important. Whether I mean, and not I'm, I'm not just saying in terms of the software that you're using for data orchestration, but really in how you're designing how your data is going to move and live, because it, there are a lot of places where. Like I said, you're literally kind of paying someone to hold your data hostage mm -hmm. because you may be paying a small amount per month per terabyte um, for your data. But if you want to get any of it back, you may find those charges to be insane. Um, so I hope that's not your only copy. <laughs> yes, exactly. That. Well, or you know, there's, there's, there's orchestration ways to possibly get around some of that. But you have to start coming up with ways to get around the, the high cost that of, of keeping your data sitting somewhere. Um, and that also kind of leads into small discussions about CapEx versus mm -hmm. CapEx um, and the predictability of that cost. Yep. And it may, and by the way, it may also be worthwhile if you're, if you're one who's gone down that path already and, and now starting to have some buyer's remorse, it, it may be worthwhile looking at, you don't want to get stuck in the, well, I already did this, so I guess I just got to keep paying. Because there are ways around either it's, you know, maybe it suck up that that egress cost one time because you'll realize in a period of time that putting that data somewhere else will end up saving you money. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's ways to work around certain high cost egress charges to get data into something that's lower cost. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's definitely something that we as Key Code can help folks understand and be able to implement to, to get into things that are more budget-friendly. Certainly. So what, one thing also that's really a boon for cloud-based workflows is protection. So uh, there's bad actors out there, both inside and out, and you know that results in things like ransomware or um, you know trying to hold data hostage or 
just theft of data. Um, how do you see the cloud as a backstop for? Boy, um, well, multiple ways. Obviously, the cloud is create. Well, I should say not all cloud providers are created equal, but uh, most cloud providers, Seagate specifically, I know we have a big focus on security um, and and have secure security certifications to go with that. On top of that, you can even do things like creating immutable buckets and other things, so that literally data can't be can't be modified. So the ransomware is to basically make you virtually ransomware proof. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it certainly plays a large part in a security strategy, or can play a large part in a security strategy um, when you're looking at that. So that's it's. I would say it's it's in looking at both how you access the data and making sure that all that access is is secured. But then as well, even looking at when the data is stored, ensuring that it's stored in such a way, i.e. potentially immutable buckets or other things that can prevent bad actors from modifying that data. Yep. And that's the thing with immutable. I've written it. You can't overwrite it. You can't change it. I can make another copy. But what I've got there will always be there. And that's the whole wonderful thing about immutable ideas exactly exactly and 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 i would say in getting back to i mean and this i think feeds back to the conversation about uh data orchestration too is is that versioning um with immutable buckets and and other how they all feed together because you don't you want to know where is your single source of truth right and that can help you identify that exactly especially if you know something really really bad has happened yeah yeah any questions for me? I do. I do, actually. Yeah. So you're the guy who, who deals with a whole bunch of different companies um, and puts solutions together, right? You, you're, you're architecting these solutions. As a solution provider and a solution architect, what do you look for in the companies that you work with to, to be parts of these solutions for, for your customers? I would say the one thing I look for is... It's not just being driven as a technical choice. It's not just an engineering choice. That sounded good, so let's do that. Um, there needs to be a complete understanding on the part of the organization that's implementing what their costs are going to be, how their costs are going to change. Because it could be that, yeah, we're, we're paying more per year, but we're, it, it's OPEX. So we're taking it out of, mm -hmm. we're taking it out of Uncle Sam. Yeah, or Uncle Gavin, if you're in California, <laughs> um, and having an understanding organizationally of what this means for my costs, my data, and my future monetization of content. Absolutely, yeah. Because you touched. I mean, there is definitely a difference in how capital expenditures versus operating expenses hit the books. Correct. And I know different companies have, have different strategies around that, right? Exactly. Because the other thing is, if you walk into, uh, say, a house of worship and start saying, we can cut down on your operational ex expenses, we can make your CapEx into OpEx, there's no there's no discussion because it doesn't matter to them. Right. Schools doesn't matter to them. Right. So because they're not paying taxes. They're not paying the taxes in the yeah. first place. So they, they've got nothing they need to take an, an income mm -hmm. out of. So that's why the, the financial folks need to understand what the total cost of ownership is in cloud and how that affects their strategy over multiple years and what 
benefits that can bring for them and what short-term pain that could bring for them. Mm-hmm. So if you get an organization where it doesn't matter if it's CapEx or it's OpEx because it's still X and X is really tight, mm-hmm. let's you know figure out the most cost-effective way to do everything across the board. And whether that's on-prem or whether that is in cloud, that's the exercise you need to go through to determine what what's going to be there. Um, also talking to people about okay, I need to spin up and I need 8K in my my cloud instance for these particular VFX workflows. Do I just leave it sitting there when I'm done? Do I have it backed up? What is your total data strategy and not leaving things in buckets that are really expensive? Because, you know, I've taken a look at, you know, many, many data analysis printouts for many different organizations and the question that comes up is, why are you doing this? This data is ancient. You're paying a lot of money for it, whether it's on-prem or in cloud, mm-hmm. and figuring out what your cost over time is for data. Because if you can put that onto a, you know, whether it's tape or, or whether it is a longer-term deep archive in the cloud, is it going to cost? Is it going to save you money over time? And is it going to decrease your risk over time? Because one of the reasons a lot of studios wanted to move to a non-physical form of storage for their data was a fire a couple of years ago at Universal. Took out all sorts of masters and, and things that were irreplaceable. Those are in the cloud, multiple places. It's a disaster recovery process to get it back. It's not a, we don't have this anymore process because people frown on that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you can never get that shot again. Nope. Or, you know, like all all the the original masters for Tom Petty are gone. Mm -hmm. They don't exist anymore. So. What would you say some of the biggest pain points you've run into have been of of customers who have gone to the, I should say, once your customers have gone to the cloud, what are the biggest pain points that they've run into? One of the pain points I've seen is when you're dealing with someone else's data. So I'm an organization that does production work for someone else. They come in, there's a requirement to back up. I backed it up to the cloud. And then once I'm done, they're done. The show's gone. There's no one left to ask. So having an understanding of what your data retention requirements are contractually over time for someone else's data is important before you get into that sort of environment because you may end up with with an environment where there's no one else to ask, so I've deleted it. And then two years down the road, the company that actually owned the data is asking questions of you because you're the only entity that exists at this point. So having an understanding of the needs before you get into anything is just a smart way to do business. And in those cases, it also becomes important once you have that understanding to know how much it's going to cost you to store that data wherever you're storing it too. Correct. Because you could end up losing money on a project if you store it in the wrong place. You could. And and the other thing also there is maybe an understanding that, okay, for the deep archive, company X that I'm doing business with, give me your information. I will put this in your archive. I will put this in your live cloud. And I don't have to worry about it. You got it. It's there. I've confirmed that it's there. However you'd lo- long you'd like to keep it, that's fine. I mean, it's the equivalent of, Putting all the stuff into a cardboard box and shipping it to the address that you 
we're billing, getting paid from. Yeah. That uh, it's over there. I don't have to worry about this anymore. Fair your enough. Cho- your choices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, the end the onus is on you because you own the data. So you might as well pay for it, storage however you want. Correct. And if you want to stop paying and you lose your data, that's up to you as well. Yeah. We could go on about this for hours. But the bottom line is if, if folks need to talk about cloud or hybrid or any of these solutions, um, you know, we have a full range of Seagate products we can talk about. Please give us a holler here at Keycode Media and we will have a discussion with you and your finance people possibly to discover what's going to be the most cost-effective and performant way to handle your archive and your cloud methodologies for your business today and tomorrow. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for watching Broadcast to Post. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive future episodes. Follow Keycode Media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to receive news on additional AV, broadcast, and post-production technology content. See you next time, folks.